Welcome back to the Mysteria podcast. Uh, we got a new guest and a new location uh, for the next few episodes, which is kind of fun. And I am very pleased to we- welcome Dave Bucket Colwell to the show today. Uh, Dave is a guitar player extraordinaire, and he's played with many incredible acts, including Humble Pie, Bad Company, The Jones Gang, just to name a few. And I am also eagerly awaiting the release of your third solo album yeah yeah perfect so that's coming out later this year correct uh hopefully so yeah i mean we've got it we've got it all written now we've got 14 songs written uh probably about the only good thing about lockdown (laughs) uh so uh yeah we're just waiting to start recording um my partner in the band buckets rebel heart is um is a, a songwriter with me and the drummer, but he lives in Spain, so we're waiting until he can come over here, you know, to start recording, which hopefully won't be too long. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah, so I'm excited for that. The the I haven't actually heard the first album. Uh, is it uh, Guitars, Beers, and Tears? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I mean that was the first one that I did, and the. I mean, I've got lots of good friends in the business and they all agreed to, you know, mainly singers do a song for me. So I've got several um, several guys singing lead vocals, Adrian Smith from Iron Maiden, Danny Bose from Thunder, Spike from the Choir Boys. Um, let's see, Steve Conti from the New York Dolls. And lots of my pals did it. Um, great fun to record. Uh, Harry James from Thunder on drums, Jazz Lockery on bass. Um, when it came out, it, it was difficult to get, you know, DJs, etc., to understand the concept of it. They were like, you know, so is Adrian going on the road with you? And it's, well, no, he's a bit busy playing to millions of people in Rio. You know? <laughs> so um, with, the, with the next album, um, Paul and I decided we wanted a band, so Buckets Rebel Heart. And we have the same lead singer, uh, a guy called Jim Stapley, who's an old friend of mine. He sang with the Jones Gang also. So we've got more of a band identity for the for that album, which is carried on for this new record. Fantastic. Yeah, it'll be a good time. I, I really enjoyed the uh, the second album. So the yeah. and is that just the is the album just called uh, Buckets Rebel Heart? Uh, no, it's called 20 Good Summers. Oh, that's right which we figure that's what we got left if we behave ourselves a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds about right. Uh, the new album is going to be called Chasing Satellites. Fantastic. So, uh, yeah, looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah, looking forward to getting in the studio. It'll be good fun. Mm-hmm. So I know I kind of jumped right in there, but we'll, we'll, we'll back it up a little bit and we'll, we'll try and have some... Uh, some sequence to, to the podcast as best as we can. But uh, yeah. obviously England, born and raised? Yes, yes, just in uh, North London, really. And mm. so when did guitar become something that was a, a real part of you? Um, I started annoying my parents very early. I think probably five or six. I had one of those plastic Beatles guitars and I would <laughs> never put it down, you know. Drove them absolutely nuts. Um, so they they got me guitar lessons when I was probably about eight years old, actually, you know, uh, which I, I loved. Um, so 
I mean, in England, you go to primary school until you're 11. By that time, I was probably a better guitar player than the teacher. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and just carried on, really. I mean, that was classically trained. And uh, I went to the Royal College of Music as an outpatient over the weekends and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I mean, started putting bands together at school, you know. But uh, I saw Humble Pie in Hyde Park, which is exactly 50 years ago this weekend, actually. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, I think I was like 14 or something, and that changed my life forever. And it, who'd have thought I'd get to actually play an humble pie, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and let me back you up a little bit. So, I mean, by a, that proficient by age 11? That's well, I was, yeah, I, I just loved it, you know, and and to be fair, the school music teacher wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's levels here. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, I know, because I, I, I play guitar as well, and I've been playing for, I guess I was about 18 or 19 when I, yeah, I was graduating high school when I bought my, my first one. It was a Epiphone Les Paul standard, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very sunburst one. Quite a nice one. I really enjoyed that one. And then you get the little starter amp and all that. But when, yeah. like for you, um, when did you, so I guess 14, yeah. So I, then you made the transition to electric guitar? Um, yes, pretty much, yeah. Um, I think I had an electric guitar before that, the, the, the perennial Watkins Rapier, you know, like a 20-pound guitar, which I bought with my, money from the paper round, you know. <laughs> but yeah, you know, got got my first guitars, you know, proper ones, I guess, about 14, yeah. Mm -hmm. And how about in your family? Is there, uh, is there a bit of a, a musical gene in, in your family at all? None whatsoever, none whatsoever. I mean, my dad couldn't even play a record player, bless him, you know. And, <laughs> But I must say, I mean, mum and dad were really, really supportive right from the start. And, uh, you know, I mean, my dad worked for the BBC um, and was a lighting film director and, and all sorts. So, I mean, my my first bands, we had, because he was an electrician as well, we had homemade lighting rigs and everything, you know. And, I mean, and he got us gigs like crazy you know i mean we i was on the road proper at 16 you know i mean we we'd signed to a mecca agency you know we had our own tour bus and everything you know all thanks to my dad really and so what kind of shows were you doing then oh it varied i mean because we were all underage to go in pubs you know we had to sign all sorts of waivers and stuff but I mean, we went on tour opening for the Black and White Minstrels, which you probably can't say nowadays, but, you know, that was like a vaudeville show. Um, um, yeah, I mean, various sort of theatre things. And then I guess around, I must have been 17 when pub rock hit. And uh, that's kind of when we fell out with my dad who was managing us um, because we all bought Marshall stacks, you know, and of course the PA was tiny and we go in these pubs and blow the roof off and get barred. <laughs> you know, so uh, 
it was time for Dad to move on and and the rest of it. So and then pub rock hit, and um, that's when I seriously, you know, we had, we had a band called uh, Hotline. Um, actually, before that, we had Shady Lady, um, and we were playing five nights a week, every week, all year long. You know, just resident in pubs, like so. The Thomas Beckett on a Monday, Windsor Castle on a Tuesday, Brecknock on a Wednesday, and we just did that for two years. I mean, that's where we sort of learn our stagecraft, if you like. You know, I mean, it's the same with a lot of bands like Iron Maiden. We we all grew up in this London pub scene. You know, I mean, I first met my dear friend Adrian in Iron Maiden. He was in a band called Urchin, and I was in a band called Angel Street, and we were resident at all the same pubs in England, you know? It's kind of funny because, so obviously, like, I grew up in Vancouver, and um, not the best music scene out of, out of Vancouver. I mean, we have a few pretty good bands. Um, a lot of talented musicians, definitely. Yeah. But my era is not particularly great for that. But one of the things that it kind of like you telling me that sort of reminds me of like LA in like the eighties where you have like all yeah. the, and you like all the, you know, down sunset strip. Right. And it's just that, that yeah, was a, complete, a complete scene going on. You know, I mean, when we were playing all that, these pubs, our, our goal was to get to play the marquee in London where everybody wanted to play, you know, and we eventually did, you know, we all had support in slots at the, at the marquee, he got paid about a fiver, but it didn't matter. It was the marquee, you know. And um, I think I mean the ACDC's first. They did one pub gig, and then they did a a month long residency at the marquee on I think Monday nights. Um, and my band at the time, Seven Twenty, did the following month. You know, so and everyone from all the bands used to come down and see each other. It was a great community in London. It really was. People used to come from far and wide, you know, and you'd just end up at the bar with, you know, guys and Thin Lizzy and, you know, just everyone. Well, when I was talking to uh, Paul Guerin, one of the things, I'm not sure if we talked about it on the podcast or if we were just kind of chit-chatting off, off the air, but that was one of the things that really stood out to me was just the... Uh, community side of it like exactly. it's not yeah. like you're trying to step over each other you're actually all trying to no, no. each other it up. was great it was great I mean if someone got a good gig you know you a big gig you borrow a couple of cabinets off the other guys you know I mean going back to my you know when I was very young I mean my grandmother sort of bought me up because dad was on on the road doing his movie tv thing and my mum worked so my nan was there and she used to feed all the bands, you know, they'd all come round because no one had any money, you know. And even if I wasn't there, you know, a van would pull up and she'd feed them all. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, that's, that's your band manager right there, just keeping everybody happy and feeding yeah, yeah. them all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness, yeah. But that must make a huge difference, too, to have that level of support because, you know, music is, is one of those things. I, I guess kind of any arts whether you know acting or music where it's you know to to make it into the scene is not guaranteed and so then it's kind of like you know but to have that support at least and, and the encouragement to keep going that must have been crucial 
Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I do feel for, you know, aspiring young bands now. I mean, not only with the difficulty of the pandemic, even before that, you know, there just aren't those small grassroots venues anymore, you know. Um, you end up paying a play at half of them, you know, and it's, and now it's even worse because a lot of these venues have, have closed, you know. I mean, I can think of one venue in the vicinity of London that's a sort of a pub rock thing is the cabin in Rains Park, and that's about the only place, you know. All the rest of the next level up, you need a promoter, you need an agent, you know, you need to sell 500 tickets. And what do you think attributed to that change? And so, and what kind of year, are we talking like 90s or a little bit later on where that really died down? So a bit later on, yeah. I mean, through, you know, through, I started seriously in the late 70s and we worked all through the 80s and all that. I mean, the 90s, I toured America nonstop with Bad Company, you know, for the oh, right. for 11, 12 years. So, but, but in that period, some sort of change. I mean, a lot of tribute bands became popular, you know, and, um, you know, their music, good luck to them and all that. But it, it a lot of these venues would only book tribute bands because they packed it out, you know, and you got a bit of a, you know, a thing going on. If, if everyone's a tribute band, where's the new music going to come from? You know, you've got to balance it really, I think. Well, and it, do, it doesn't give anyone a chance to get discovered because you're playing no. ACDC cover tunes and, you know, it doesn't yeah. give that creative, yeah. Uh, yeah, ability. Yeah. No, I mean, I'd, since my very first band, you know, we all, I mean, we might did a few covers, but we we always played original songs. You know, I started writing songs as soon as I could play guitar, you know. It's just all part and parcel of it. You know, now at home, like, I mean, I don't, ever pick a guitar up to practice, so to speak. I pick it up and start writing something, you know. And, and with the, the writing process, so, so you said that you started writing pretty much as soon as you were, you know, good enough to actually write a song. Yeah, as soon as I could pick three chords together, I was writing songs, yeah. And how, I don't really know kind of how to ask the question other than just like, how is that, how did that process come together for you? Was it something where, you kind of were inspired by some of the people that you listened to and, or was it just, did it just kind of come naturally to you? Um, I, I was inspired by, especially in a guitar sense. And when I was younger, you know, bands like Humble Pie, Mott the Hoople, Free, that's the style of guitar that I naturally evolved into playing very bluesy rock, you know, um, so, yeah, a lot of the time, early writing, it was all based around the guitar, but it was later on that I realised the importance of lyrics. And, you know, I love lyrics now. I mean, my favourite writers like Bruce Springsteen and Steve Earle, you know, where you, you know, they're actually telling a story. It's not just, yeah, yeah, baby, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, it takes, a, you, some, you know, a, a good song like that will take the listener somewhere else. You know, I mean, and try and be a bit, you know, let them make their own mind up. I mean, not too literal, you know, a bit ambiguous about it, you know. It's funny that you mentioned free because on Animal Beat, 
from yeah. the first track of, of 20 Good Summer. Yeah. The solo in there uh, really reminds me of All Right Now. Because uh, I, yeah. I like how it's got, yeah, because it's got kind of like two solos. There's like kind of like a bridge solo and then like the long solo. And it's kind of, it's got that, um, it's very airy. You know what I mean? It has that Paul Kossoff style to it. You can really. Well, I'm, a, I'm a Paul Kossoff nut, you know, always have been. I mean, I was lucky enough to see him live four times, I think, you know, and it just absolutely <laughs> incredible, you know, just mind blowing, really. But uh, yeah, and you're, you're right. It's what he doesn't play as much as what he does play. You know, um, Billy Gibbons is the same. You know, Gary Rossington from Skinner is the same. That's the sort of guitar playing that I really like. You know, you can sort of touch someone with one note if it's the right one, that delivered the right way, you know. And w listening to those American bands, how, well, how much American music were you listening to when you were growing up? Was that pretty accessible over in the UK? At the uh, yeah, it was. I mean, uh, my dear friend Barry from school, I mean, We'd just straight after school, we'd go down to the record store. I mean, in those days, you got a plethora of albums coming out all the time. So it was, uh, I mean, we bought anything that was on Asylum Records, for example. So that was like all your sort of Americanos, you know, you, you, um, you bought all Joe Walsh and the Eagles, you know, and that also got me into a lot of lyric writing because a lot of it was country based as well, you know. Well, and it's a different, uh, and you kind of, I think you said it right when you're mentioning Springsteen and and that because the, the and Steve Earle, the, the style of, of writing is very unique in that sense. Yeah, it is very much so. I mean, I do love country. I tend to prefer the sort of outlaw country, if you like, rather than, you know, I don't like the, achy breaky heart nonsense you know <laughs> but I mean a lot of the bands I love now like um oh god I mean there's just loads of them they're, they've all got black in the name you know black smoke yeah you know the ones I mean I really uh, love black them smoke. yeah yeah absolutely love them and there there are a lot of country influences um, I actually going along, you know, along this vein. I mean, way down the line in '96, I signed a publishing deal with Disney um, in Hollywood to go to Nashville to write country music. Through Disney? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did, Disney. Well, <laughs> they're they're a huge company, Disney. You know, and Nashville at that time was the music publishing center of the world. I mean, for example, Warner Brothers had 120 staff writers just knocking songs out on Music Row because a lot of the country artists don't write their own songs. So these guys would all write the songs and pitch them to artists and producers, etc. So, uh, yeah, myself, Robert Hart, who was in Bad Company at the time, and Simon Kirk, we all signed at Disney. And uh, I ended up going to Nashville for about a year. Great oh, times. I mean, that's all changed again now as well. I mean, <laughs> back then, 120 staff writers. I think Warner Brothers have got four now. <laughs> 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 you 
all the big producers came in from LA and the producers write the music as well and bring their buddies in. So it's, you know, it's very difficult to get in now. And that idea of having just loads of staff writers, is that something that's, because I've never heard of that. Is, is that something that is somewhat common in the music industry? It was, it was back then. It was then. I mean, and when I signed the contract, I mean, the, straight away they sent me off to Nashville for, I think, 15 days, and they put me with at least two, sometimes three different co-writers every day, starting at nine in the morning. And these guys usually finish at five at night. And you're writing in a house on Music Row. You can hear the guys next door writing in D. So you start writing. I called the guy up. I said, I can't work like this. Ain't it? Oh, I work. He said, well, you've got to. You've taken the money. <laughs> I said, well, it's just not how I work. I can't do it. You know, I said, he said what, what do you propose to do? You know, so I said, well, just give me a couple of days. You know, and I called a friend of mine, Jim Delacrochet, who has a press office for a lot of country artists. And, he took me out that evening to see a country singer called John Anderson, who was great, and invited me to come and write with him for his new album. And that I met Vince Gill and Alison Krauss as well. So I called the guy up, said, Look, I'm working with these people. He's like, How on earth did you do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty incredible. What was that experience like? That must have just been insane. Oh, it was great. I, I loved it. Yeah, really, really good. Great town, Nashville. Yeah, I, I know. I'm pretty sure that's where Chris Stapleton got his start. I think he was a session yeah. guy. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, even now you get, you know, pre-pandemic, I keep having to say that, but yeah. you, you get 400 acts a week playing Nashville and they're all stunningly brilliant. I mean, there's times when you think, Oh boy, I think I'm just going to hang up the guitar. You know, and you see, it's like, you know, absolutely incredible. You know. and, and I mean, we kind of mentioned that earlier, but I'm wondering, like, yeah, that must be frustrating because there is so much talent. And then it's just like breaking to break through. It just seems like it just doesn't happen for, well, obviously, because only very few people make a lot of the music, of the popular music, right? So it just seems yeah. like, uh, is that just a numbers thing? It's just. It's, it's, it's the same for, you know, anything involved that, you know, that, you're, that you've got a goal in life, that, you know, that anything that makes big money, sport, acting, anything like that, you kind of, you know, there's a lot of people want to do it. So you just got to find your way through and keep motivated and, you know, sort of do the best you can really and, well and even you know, I've, been, I've been very lucky in the bands i've been in also you know so you know when i went to nashville it's, oh here's the guitar player from bad company would you like to write with him so straight away you're at the you know you're at the high end of what's going on you know yeah exactly well and, and so and what i was going to say earlier was just the fact that so you're you're 16, 17, and you're touring like Kiss, like you're you're right out there, like you're and the places that you mentioned, they're the like for at least I lived in the UK, so I kind of know where those places are, but that's like a lot of distance, like geographically, like we're not talking like 
oh, just down the street, down the street. Like you're actually doing. No, no. <laughs> I mean, we we bought a, a coach, you know, when I think, yeah, I was the oldest one in the band, 16. <laughs> um, we bought a coach uh, for 600 pounds and Adrian's band Urchin had a coach also. Theirs was painted all white, so we painted ours all black. <laughs> and we just, we'd sleep in it, you know, and, uh, yeah, had a bit of trouble getting insured to drive it. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and, and would that have been your dad driving that back then? Uh, no, it was us. We'd, we'd share it out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the drummer had an older brother. He'd come along a lot of the time and drive, yeah. There you go. So you could, you could share the responsibility there. Yeah, yeah. And but, I mean, it was, it was great. Some of the things, like, you know, we, we drove after a really late show and everyone's completely tired and it's pitch black. So let's just pull over and go to sleep, you know. So we pulled over in these, we've got camp beds with sleeping bags. And it's really cold and sort of woke up in the morning and you could hear this on the door. Everyone's like, oh, God, you know, we're being attacked or something, you know. So we're, we're sharing the toolkit out. We eventually ripped the, the door open, like, go on then, go on. And it was just a cow. We were like loads of cows and they were licking the door. However, it's a good job they did because the front two wheels were on one side of a railway track and the back wheels were on the other side. So if a train had come along, it would have cut the whole thing in half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what happens when teenagers are uh, driving a coach. Yeah, that'll yeah. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, that'll be a good scare. Yeah. Jeez. So okay, so you're doing that. You're you're touring for and, and sorry, and how long were you doing that for with that particular band? So about 18, 19? With, uh, with those bands, Angel Street, Hotline, Shady Lady, that was all about four or five years. Um, but then we put a band together called 720. And things got a bit more serious. We had a, a manager, and we we started getting support tours. You know, we supported Black Sabbath on the Mob Rules tour, so we were playing proper, you know, Hammersmith Odeon sized venues and all that. You know, supporting UFO and what have you. Did you meet Ozzy? Huh? Yeah, yeah. We supported Blizzard of Oz. Yeah. Yeah, and it how was great. that? That must have been. Oh, that must like, have been. great. Yeah, I mean, love, lovely bloke, you know. I mean, he's just a real generous guy. Obviously, he's a bit pickled now and then, but, you know, lovely guy. Um, yeah, and, and you get to, you know, going back, you get to learn stagecraft then, you know, like playing big stages and, and stuff like that, you know, and, I'd met a few years before when we were doing the pub rock scene. That was the first time I met Paul Sampson. He was a guitar player and he had a band called Refugee. And uh, I'd been classically trained. I was still a bit reserved on guitar, you know. When I, when I saw Paul, he was just like, you know, full on, you know, sounded like Leslie West in a pub, you know. And uh, he said, come and play my band for a couple of songs. And... I walked on and he just went like that on everything, put everything on 10. 
and kick me up the backside and shove me up the front. You know, if you're going to do a solo, do a solo. So that, you know, you, you start to learn stuff like that, how to control the guitar and, you know, a lot of volume and all that, which is a part of it. And for something like that, is that just simply trial and error and keep working at it and, and find what works? Well, I, well I, and being lucky enough to have someone, you know, helping you and, and showing you, you know, Paul did. I mean, Mick Rouse was a, one of my favourite players as well. And he was so generous, you know, when I joined his band. Um, oh, you take this solo boy, no, Corn, you do this, you know. And same as thing as Paul, shove you up the front, you know. And so that sort of encouragement, um, but still treating you on the same level, not like you're a new kid or anything, you know. It's, it's really, really good. It, I, one of the things that I've been really interested in lately is understanding creativity. So like the actual like process behind like the psychological processes behind creativity. And one of the things that kind of tangential to that, but is sort of related, and it reminds me of what you're talking about right now, is the how helpful it is to have uh, not maybe a mentor is a little too official, but yeah. a mentor of sorts, because it you get to learn from them, but also it gives you the the confidence because you know that if it goes south for you, he'll pick it up and recover it for you, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, having that, going back to what you said before, having that support, you know, in, in learning your trade and and something you love is invaluable, really is. Well, and that's what allows you to, it's the exponential improvement because then it, yeah. you know, it's slow going, slow going, and then all of a sudden you get the big curve. And then that's when things, you know, especially the confidence side too. I mean, once you, cause I'm sure for you, once you kind of figured your rough style on like on stage, how to kind of, you know, what to do, when to do it. Once you kind of figured that out, I'm sure that made just a tremendous improvement in your playing too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, you find your niche, you know, I mean, I, I I've always kind of been, you know, either the band leader or definitely, you know, the one of the main songwriters and, and stuff like that, you know. So it's, uh, yeah, that's a certain way of, you know, I, I mean, I'm not really a, you know, a, an amazing rhythm player or an amazing lead player, but I do kick up a din. <laughs> I think you're pretty damn good. So you can be humble all you want, but... <laughs> Exactly. And so, so now you're playing, um, and so that was 720 was the band? Yeah, 720, yeah. 720. And, and how did you go about getting a, a manager? Is that something that you would like audition? Um, well, well, no, the, they had a three-piece band together first, and the drummer, Paul Edwards, who is now the drummer in Rebel Heart. I mean, the Rebel Heart album we made four years ago, we should have made 30 years ago, you know, but we didn't. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, and I mean, that that manager back in the day, I mean, had no musical experience whatsoever. It was just a, he put us on a wage. That's what it was. It was the finance to be able to do what we wanted to do and grow, you know. And so what year, what year are we taught? This is about the 80s? Uh, yeah, so that's, yeah, so through the 80s. 
Um, and then I got approached. Uh, Mick Rouster was one of my heroes, and everybody knew that in the scene, you know. And we were at this, uh, all the musicians used to go to a place called the Funny Farm, which was an after-hours club, you know. And, and this guy came out, he said, are you the guy that likes Mick Rouse? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, oh, I'm his roadie. He's putting a band together. Do you want to come and try out? So I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he said, we'll come to Nomi's studio tomorrow. And uh, I went down to Nomi's studio and, and they gave me a cassette with two songs on it. I said, go and listen to this in your car and then come in, you know. And the drummer was Chris Slade, who'd been with ACDC and, you know, and Pino Palladino, who's now with The Who, was the bass player. And there was just a Marshall stack, you know. And then sat sat around in the studio was Lemmy uh, and Brian Robertson, Finn Lizzie, and I, I think Dave Gilmore wandered in, you know, and it's like, oh, crap, you know. <laughs> no. I, just, again, I put, everything, put everything on 10 and just started blasting and, Chris stood up and he went, stop, stop, you know, because Mick wasn't even there. He said, stop, stop. Um, got on one of those, the first mobile phones. Remember those? It's like a brick. It's a huge thing. He got on the phone to Mick. He said, yep, yeah, we found him. He's just like a little version of you. <laughs> so, uh, so I got the gig and, you know, they said, I'll turn up here in four days' time or something, which happened to be... It was in Henley. Mick had a huge house then. I turned up and there's Porsches and Ferraris and all this. I went, jeez. Knocked on the door. It's five in the afternoon. And uh, a butler opened the door, you know. I said, uh, I'm here to see Mick Rouse. And said, uh, Mr. Mick isn't up yet. You know, Mick never used to get up till six or seven in them days. So he did get up. It's like he was lovely to meet him. I was in awe. I've never met him. He's one of my heroes. He's like, oh, all right, mate. You know, come on, we'll go down to the pub. You know, so gone into this tiny pub that was owned by his his roadie's sister or something like that. And uh, which as I walked in, and there's Alvin Lee and Dave Gilmore are sat there, and there's no nobody else in the pub. You know, we're just having a few drinks and. Uh, door open. This guy came in and had a, had a little Indian guy. I had a look around, did a thumbs up, and in walked George Harrison. And it's like, Jesus. And about midnight, they decide they want to rehearse, you know. So we go back to Dave Gilmore at a huge soundstage studio. And, you know, it's Chris on drums. And, you know, Mick started playing lead and then it went round to Dave Gilmore playing lead and it's coming my way. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah, I got the gig. <laughs> and how old are you, how old were you then? 20? Uh, yeah, that's so, let's see, going back, that's mid-80s, really, that was. So, yeah, 22, 23. Oh, my God. Wow. Unbelievable. And we we rehearsed, you know. I mean, straight away Mick put me on on wages. I think we only rehearsed three times in like eighteen months, <laughs> and did four pub gigs, and that was it, you know. So uh, yeah, off and running, and he he went off and played with Dave Gilmore on his on a world tour, and came back. 
Um, and that's when we started, I guess, about 89. 88, 89, we started the Adrian Smith and Project, which Adrian was off the road with Iron Maiden for a while. So he put a band together with me and Andy from 720. And we did a couple of gigs. We were called the entire population of Hackney. Uh, we were called the Sherman Tankers. <laughs> I won't explain that one to you. <laughs> um, and, yeah, we did like the Marquee in London. We did the Red Line in Gravesend. And then we decided we wanted to make a record, so we started writing and uh, went off to the Bahamas to, to write the ASAP album, Silver and Gold. Mm-hmm. So, How did you end up in the Bahamas for that one, other than it's nice? Uh, Adrian, Adrian wasn't allowed back in England for, you know, taxi things and all that, so he flew me and Andy out to the Bahamas. What terrible... <laughs> that's like a bond villain move uh, that's a good move <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, so yeah after and after that came back that album came out but then bad company called me uh mick didn't want to go on the road particularly um so he put me up to go on the road with bad company for for him so that was with the singer Brian Howe. They just released Holy Water. So we went on a huge tour. It lasted nearly two years long, you know, all in America. Played every state in America four times, I think, you know. So that must have been a, a that would have been a really hectic tour schedule, though, like busy at least. Uh, it was, but I mean, it was great. I mean, we had a fantastic tour bus, fantastic crew fantastic hotels i'd never really been played in america before so to go to america with a band with a top five album was pretty amazing <laughs> yeah i'd imagine so i'm trying to th- i'm trying to think like what i could ask you about that american tour because i feel like there's like so many stories in there but i don't know is there is there anything that off the top of your head that stands out i mean what was your impression H- had you been to the states much prior to that tour just no, not at all. I mean, I think I've been once to Florida when I was about 18 for a vacation, and that was Miami, and that's all I've been, so I've never been, yeah. So uh, it was definitely an eye-opener. A fantastic way to be introduced to America, you know. And that would have been, so, a, that would have been a stadium tour as well, right? Uh, well, we started off in, um, in uh, theatres, and then it went, because the album sold so well, we went straight into playing sheds, outdoor sheds. Mm. And we hooked up with Damn Yankees. And that's why that became the biggest selling tour that year, Bad Company and Damn Yankees. And that would have been a uh, double bill. Yeah. Yeah, we flip-flopped headlining. Like, one night we'd headline, the next night they would. That That's a band that uh, I don't think a lot of people know about or remember but i love damn yankees they're fantastic well it was, it was a really unusual pair i mean it's very unusual pairing for you know you got tommy shaw and jack blades both great singers both little fellas you know and you know quite melodic and then you got you know the other fella <laughs> <laughs> it's a, the big man of air oh yeah 
He's definitely the whitest guitar player I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Gotta love it. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, that's good. I love that. That's great. And and so then you you toured with them for so two year tour. Two year tour. Then we came off the road to record um, "Here Comes Trouble." Hmm. Um, that was. Uh, the second album, I'd already done a live album with Brian Howe as well, but then we did the studio album, Here Comes Trouble, went back on tour with that. So that went pretty much right through from 1990 to middle of 94, I guess. Um, and then um, Brian left and we got Robert Hart in to sing The Bad Company. Um, which was great. He's a great singer. Um, we did uh, Company of Strangers album straight away with him, and we toured that for about a year. Um, then did Stories Told and Untold, another album. So that took us through about 97, I think. And was that touring mostly in the States? Yeah, we did. Um, I mean, with the Brian Howe lineup and with the Robert lineup, we did one European tour each, you know, sort of um, a London, you know, I think five gigs in England and 10 or 15 around Germany and France and all that. So just one tour each. So the rest of it was all America. Kind of a tangential question, but uh, yeah, really random one. But it seems like Germany is always a great. Uh, country for blues and rock they seem like they're just great for that they are they're fantastic i mean there's acts that are absolutely huge in germany that can't get arrested anywhere else in the world but i mean robert hart now has been singing for manfred mann for five years and every summer they go out playing festivals every weekend you know really big festivals they're all really well run because they're all run by the government, you know, and, and the money's good and everything. So you've got bands like Manfred Mann, uh, Barclay James Harvest. Um, I toured over there with a guy called uh, Roger Chapman, who is also massive over there, you know. Yeah, because it, it seems like, because uh, I'm a huge, huge, huge Kiss fan, so I, I, I know everything about Kiss, but I know that yeah. they... Um, really big in like for them japan was always a really big one japan seems great yeah. well, even you know cheap trick you know they're big yeah, out yeah. you know live at budokan right you know yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But they're, they're another one that seems like a, a great place for that but what what are some of the maybe not unusual but maybe some like atypical places that you played that kind of stand out in that way um I mean, some of the bands you mentioned, I mean, we, we used to do package tours with Bad Company, so a lot of them were with Leonard Skinner. We did endless tours with Skinner and Foreigner. Uh, mm. We played a lot with Team Trick. And, you know, we just had great fun with them, you know. I mean, you get a three-band bill um, playing the shed, so you pack it out, you know, it'd be, be great fun. Um, a couple of... I remember we played uh, the old airfield in Vegas. 
um, which was a massive show. It was like 120,000 people or something like that. But the skies opened. It was torrential rain. And uh, Skinner just wouldn't go on, period. <laughs> and Fana uh, tried to get to the stage and turn back and wouldn't go on either. So it was just, we said, well, we'll go on, you know. And then we had a ramp going from the stage out into the crowd, which wasn't covered. Mm. And the opening song was Can't Get Enough, and Robert just grabbed me and took me straight out on his ramp. I mean, I couldn't, but the rain was, you know, but the crowd went mental, you know, because we'd actually gone on, you know. <laughs> And that's the thing too. How can you even play? Well, okay, that sounds like it was awfully rainy. But in general, like, can can you even play in the rain? Because like, wouldn't your stuff get wet? It, like, well, yeah. I mean, it's you're not really going to get electrocuted on a wireless system, for yeah. example. You know, um, but it was. Te- I mean, luckily, it was can't get enough, which is in open tuning, so like, there's not a great deal to do. You know, because <laughs> I'm. Slipping all over the place, you know. <laughs> but um, we only lasted half a song. We came back undercover, looked like drowned rats, you know. Yeah, that must be. And and is that one of the largest crowds that you've played for? It's, yeah, yeah, that's one of the biggest. Yeah, it's great. I mean, what what's like even just walking on stage and seeing that must be like. How do you kind of process that? Because that just Wow, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I don't get, you know, frightened or anything. I do get a buzz, obviously, you know, your blood starts pumping, you know, but you do get used to it. And, and again, being a part of a band that you trust and your, your friends and all that, it, it, it's, it's just, here we go, you know, it's like a gang, you know, it's like great. <laughs> it's, I mean, some of the, shows i think we did a huge show in new york somewhere and uh uh john McEnroe, a tennis player was a friend of mine and he came with his brother and at that time we had a kabuki curtain and so you know the curtains closed we're on stage and at a certain point you know bang and the curtain drops and there's the you know and uh, John's brother was on stage talking, talking to me, just like me and you, you are, you know. And my guitar tech's going like, and away, and then boom, the curtain comes down. He's like, ah, he nearly died, you know. Yeah, you got a shock to the system for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so now, where did we, where did we leave off? Uh, uh, about, so we, 97? about 97 yeah um so then uh came back and yeah i did a few things like toured with roger chapman and various other sort of things and started putting together i guess the songs for my first album but then got a call from bad company again paul rogers had come back do I want to tour with them with Paul Rogers? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was great. I mean, that was with Simon on drums and Rick Wills on bass, who had been with Foreigner, but was with me in Bad Company through all the Brian Howe and Robert Hart as well. So us three have been playing together for 10 years already. Um, so they, we went to New York and 
I think there was two days booked for rehearsals. Paul didn't show up the first day. And the second day, he just came in and got on the, in the rehearsal room, put did the, you know, just sang the set. Thanks, lads, and, and walked out. And that was it. We didn't even sound check. We went straight to the first show. I don't think we sound checked for about seven shows, actually. We just went straight on and did it. That was on a t big tour as well with Sticks and... Um, can't remember the other fellow's name. What was that song? The Stroke, Stroke, Stroke Me. Oh, uh, Billy Squire. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So big tours, <laughs> no sound. It just on and did it. You know, it's great. And, and that note, I, I, I've, you and Paul have both said that as well. Where it's like, yeah, like we we won't do a sound check or or we won't do a rehearsal. We'll just. Is that just because? I mean professionals but is that just kind of a is that like a musician thing you have to rebel against the the, the... <laughs> no, you know with those bands we're lucky enough to have great crew and that i mean i've had some fantastic guitar techs you know you, it's all done you know you come get off the bus walk on the stage you know they put your guitar on and it's all there i mean i used to have little crosses on the stage with a sweet spot where it feedback, you know. Um, and yes, yeah, you know, when you're doing 90 shows in one run, you know, a go to a soundtrack every day is a pain in the neck, you know. When you want to, there's other stuff to do, a bit of sightseeing, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I mean, I, usually, Obviously, we'd be touring all all year long, and a lot of the bad company set was people want to hear, hear the old songs. So it's pointless rehearsing them over and over again. But when you write a new album, the writing process and the rehearsing to record it, you know the songs pretty well also. So you don't really need to rehearse them before you go out and play them. Yeah, it's kind of like, I guess that would sort of be like the equivalent of like a pro athlete kind of doing like, not like skipping on the fundamentals, but just like doing some stuff that's like, you know, like we're we're yeah. kind of up here and you know. You, you don't want to peak early, do you? Let's face it. <laughs> I mean, we were rehearsing tomorrow with the Jones gang. So we got two shows at the weekend and we haven't played for 16 months. We haven't done any gigs. So we got a rehearsal tomorrow, which started off, at, you know, Sort of midday to about six, and then now it's gone from that one o'clock till four. Well, we could knock it on the head at three because of the traffic. So now it's getting short and short. Yeah. We want to go home. <laughs> and the trouble is, with all these bands I've been in, we have such a great time. When you do get together for rehearsal, all you do end up doing is nattering and chatting and catching up, you know. Yeah, mean, we've got to play something now. Why? <laughs> well, and actually, again, totally off topic. I don't know how it came to me, but when, uh, like, as far as like gear is concerned, I want to get a little bit technical with that kind of geeky stuff because I think it's interesting. But I, I noticed right. on uh, with uh, when was this in Sweden? Uh, the Sweden Rock. Sweden Rock, that's it. Okay. And yeah. the setup you have, Blackstar? Yeah. Setup yeah. Like unreal. Yeah, I mean, I Blackstar was uh, five guys that used to work with Marshall. I've been with Marshall for absolutely years. 
Mm. Um, and some things went on there. And five of the guys from Marshall, including two of the guys that designed the um, the amps um, and the head of sales and the PR guy and all that, they all left and put together Blackstar. Mm. And I knew the guys very well, and they said, would I voice out some of their sort of prototype amps and everything, and I loved them. So I've been using Blackstar ever since, you know. Um, just I just use the amp I use, you, they don't actually do anymore. Um, the Series 1 100-watt head, um, you know, just a great amp. And with touring, because obviously, you know, touring with Bad Company and like these like big, you know, and, and like well, well-established uh, uh, musicians, the how much liberty did you have to kind of pick your own rig or was it mostly you just kind of went with what they had? Because I'm sure what they had was unbelievable, but. No, no, I always had my own rig and mm. uh, I always had my own guitar tech as well, you know, I mean, when, for example, you know, when Paul Rogers came back into Bad Company, he had a, we'd already had a crew, but he wanted to use his crew. You know, a lot of the guys were Canadian and what have you. And I said, well, that's fine, but I want my guitar tech, you know. Because, so, you know, you're in their hands, really, you know. So, um, no, I've always used my own rig. And how has your rig changed over the years? Has it changed much? I mean, obviously, you said Marshall um, was was one of your favorites for sure, but I think I mean when I was using Marshalls um, on, on those big tours, I typically I'd have you know four heads running through six cabinets, you know. But um, with the the Blackstar stuff, um, I haven't done any real big tours like we did in those days, like really long. Um, to us, so I tend to use one hundred watt head with humble pie. I use that one head through two cabinets, and I do have another spare head and another two cabinets linked up. You know. Mm -hmm. And guitar wise, same kind uh, of guitars that you've used. How how has that changed over the years? I've always been pretty much a traditionalist. You know, I mean, when I first saw Mick Rouse in Mott the Hoople. Um, and he had a Les Paul Jr. And just with a single P90, I just, that raw. And then Leslie West was using them. Uh, Steve Marriott was using the Epiphone ones. So I love P90 pickups. So, I mean, I think I had my first Les Paul Jr. probably 1978. I think I paid £250 for it or something, you know. Um, but I've still, I mean, that's still one of my favourite guitars. I've got a 1956 Les Paul Jr., which I use for a lot of the rhythm stuff on recording on the album. Um, Les Paul Custom, I've got, and uh, Les Paul Standard. Yeah, I'm pretty much a Les Paul, but and Telecasters. I love Telecasters as well. Well, I was I gonna mean, say, I do. Like, with all the time you spent in the states, I'm like, there's got to be a Fender in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that fond of Stratocasters. There's a bit of a different tension on the strings on a Strat, and I, I bend a lot, you know. And it's, it's Gibson's a bit more forgiving mm. for the bending and, and whatever. But 
I mean, I do like Telecasters because you can give them a real thwacking, you know. Um, and also, uh, I use a lot of guitars from a company called Vintage, mm -hmm. uh, which are lower-end guitars, but, I mean, real playable. I mean, the I've got a Lemon Drop Les Paul. Um, I've got three, three Les Pauls, actually, Vintage, and they're all great guitars, you know. Sound really good. Um, Wilkinson pickups in them, and I've got a couple of vintage uh, Telecasters with Fishman power bridges on, so you can get an acoustic as well as the electric out of it. Um, I had they did make a signature guitar for me, Fret mm. um, King, which is the high end of vintage. Um, they made a Dave Bucket Colwell Les Paul junior type guitar i gave my 56 and said just make that <laughs> and they did as much as they could you know, various little things for copyright and all that but great guitars and sorry how long uh have you been using vintage for Re relatively recently oh uh, no no about five six years i think okay yeah. I, I, I was with the guitar player mate of mine jeff whitehall um we used to do some of the uh the Marshall shows at trade fairs with Nico from Iron Maiden. And we were wandering around the Frankfurt show and Jeff said, oh, you've got to come and have a look at these young man. Come on, right up your strata, you know. And I played, I signed a deal with them that day. So I've been endorsing them ever since. And I, I turned on Paul from the Choir Boys and that a lot of people use them now. Bernie Marston's got some good guitars. Mm -hmm. I haven't played. I haven't played any of those, but I figure I'm like Andertons will probably have a few, so I should probably whip, whip down there, try a few out. Yeah. 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 And so, um, how about pedals? Well, I, I figure I might as well ask you all the geeky stuff together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not a pedal bloke, really. I mean, I just have a tuner, um, a chorus and maybe a delay pedal, but I'm not bothered if, a, if I don't have a delay pedal, really. Um, I use the volume control on the guitar a lot because a lot of the time I'm the only guitarist. So, you know, you can use quite, you know, the thing with Bad Company that the quiet bits were really, really quiet, which makes the chorus is really powerful when you turn it up. You know, that's the art of playing in a three piece, really. Um, I use those tiny little more pedals. Have you seen those tiny little things? They are like um, they're they're like they're real small, like they're like this big kind of thing. The, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, yeah you're just a tuner, a, a multi-chorus, and a, a delay. Hmm. Even when you were younger, not much of a, a pedal guy, just kind of, I guess, a volume guy. <laughs> yeah, no, not. I mean, it's pointless to me having boosting pedals because anything that made it louder, I'd have on all the time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, going back to when my dad, you know, was having problems with us being thrown out of gigs for being too loud. My dad was an engineer. He got down to one gig and we noticed there was these little black boxes sort of fitted onto the front of our marshals where, where the volume knobs are. And with like cables coming out the bottom, you know, like wires. And uh, obviously, you go into a solo and you'd hear, Whirr! 
any physical turn the volume knob down. He'd be up the back, you know, made it out of alarm clock bits or something like that, you know, to physically turn the volume down. Of course, you'd lose all your sustain and everything. <laughs> no, I've never been much of a, um, a pedal bloke, really. And so even on the uh, 20 Good Summers album, um, like distortion or overdrive or, or just volume, mostly? Just volume. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the amps I use have got quite a bit of gain on them, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, also, I mean, Paul Gurren to tell you, we've discovered these things called a blue, blue guitar. It's like a tiny little thing like that but it's a 100 watt valve amp you can put it in your hand luggage oh. a guy called Thomas Blug made it and you can actually drive you know take it to a gig in your handbag you drive a 4x12 of it and it'll sound just like a Marshall 100 watt head it's incredible that's what I use to record demos with it's just no speed camera just a record out yeah it's a little demon then holy cow <laughs> yeah that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I was joking with uh, a friend of mine uh, back home because I bought a, uh, eh, it was a couple years ago, uh, from Anderton's as well. The nice thing about living in Guildford is Anderton's was a 10-minute walk. It, even where I am right now, 10-minute walk, I'm right there. But, it's a uh, great store. It's a oh, great store. It's a dangerous store. Don't go in there with a wallet. <laughs> No, no, I, I don't go in there at all. I just call them up and have them send me stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I bought a, um, uh, orange micro tear. So it's right. literally like this tiny, teeny little thing. And I, I can't play it louder than like one and a half. Cause yeah. this is a beast. Like this thing will blow the roof off the place. It's just this it's little nice. tiny, but unbelievable. Yeah. They're incredible, some of the things now. I mean, particularly with bass amps, you, know, you get like a 800 watt bass amp. You yeah. put in pocket, you know? <laughs> yeah, that stuff, it, it, it's it's powerful stuff. But, and, and that must be the thing too, like even for you, like have you noticed that the technology has, I mean, obviously all technology's got better as the time has rolled on, but as far as the the stuff that you use to tour and to record, have you noticed uh, just kind of a change in, in that at all? Or Completely. I mean, Foreigner, for example. Foreigner have no amps on stage whatsoever. You know, everyone's on in-ears, you know, and the amps are like way back in another hall behind the stage in a flight case when you just plug the, there's a mic in the flight case on the cabinet, you just plug that in. Uh, a friend of mine, Rick Wills, has been doing some show. He was in original in Foreigner, and they've got him out doing a couple of songs now um, on a few gigs. And he's, he can't, you know, he said there's just no amps. All you can hear is this drum kit. Because usually we had, we'd have monitors from hell, you know, the drums would sound like an avalanche. And he says all you can hear is this little tapping. That's <laughs> pretty weird. I mean, I've never used in ears on stage. I've been. Mean, with bad companies, it's only a three-piece. I can understand if you're in the Eagles, you know, and all the rest of it, but I don't like to use them, really. 
And, and that must have been somewhat more recent, like the Anier thing. Like we're talking like the 80s maybe or, or even later? Uh, even later, I think. Yeah, mm. I mean, the first time I came across him, Paul Rogers wanted us to wear him. And that was 2000. Oh, uh, I lasted about half a song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's coming at you with all the high tech stuff. And I guess was that after? Was he coming back from Queen, touring with Queen, uh, or did he tour with Queen after that? Queen was after that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They would. They would have had the 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 real swanky stuff for that tour, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I did did a gig with Brian May, and uh, he had his, you know, his number one famous AC30, and uh, I had a Blackstar 45 watt combo right next to him, and we both sort of, you know, went up to, we just arrived, went up to both hit an A chord, both loud as hell, and you know, he looked, he went, actually, they sound the same, don't they? I said, pretty close, <laughs> so it's just two of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and what what show was that that you played with uh brian it, it was a a party for a publisher guy a private party you know and it's um the band was rick wills on bass again um a singer from ireland called ronan Kavanagh, who was touring with me with the bucket and co thing um and it was just a th you know, a throwaway thing. They said, you know, Brian May wants you to play with him, uh, do some Queen songs. It's like, okay. So I said, what Queen songs do you want to do? So we got a list of about six. Of course, they're all the piano ones. I'm like, great. So I spent hours and hours learning how to do a, something that sounded like it on the guitar for all these piano songs. We get to the sound check. I said, should we start with this one? He went, no, no, I don't want to play that. Oh, okay, uh, let's try this one. No, no, I don't want to play that either. Let's do some bad come. Let's do some of your stuff. I'm like, gee, I've been rehearsing all week for this. <laughs> but it was great fun. Real, real nice guy. And actually, I, I probably should have asked you that earlier, but since you brought it up, it's got me thinking. So when you were younger, and even like, you know, like we're talking like young teenager and kind of throughout, would you learn songs by you know, just kind of messing around with, uh, by ear, like with a record or I guess maybe CD yeah. that later on. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to go to, I mean, loads of gigs as well. I mean, I was, you know, hardly ever at school. I was always chasing some band around somewhere, you know, <laughs> so I'd always be down the front so I could see how Mick Rouse was playing, you know. Oh, wow. So that would actually be, you literally would just be like, okay, I guess we'll just, just go see it firsthand. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because that's the thing that surprises me is just like for someone like me, where it's like, you know, YouTube or, you know, Amazon, you know, Prime or whatever, you know, you can find concerts or, or um, you know, concert footage or shows yeah. or like these sort of different things. But I mean, I, I really respect the... Uh, just the ear and the patience to to just yeah. try and all right hear three notes and then try and find something and well i mean there's a lot of those things as well like particularly in america tab and whatnot and it's all written down and everything like that and I, I was invited to uh to visit a third semester guitar class at the berkeley school of 
music in Boston. And um, I mean, there must have been 25 students in there, I guess, and half of them had sort of, I don't know, seven string guitars and all that. It's all pretty weird, all new stuff. And these were really competent kid players, you know, young players. And the tutor, they got, I mean, they're young, they don't know who I am, you know. And the teacher was like, oh, and here we have, you know, this is Mick Bucket from, from Bad Company, you know, and he, he starts playing Can't Get Enough, you know. And I sort of said, well, I said, I said, that's wrong. And he's like, what do you mean it's wrong? I've got the, got the, mute, the tab here. I said, sorry, mate, it's wrong. So, of course, the kids, all their ears are perking up now, you know. I shouldn't have, I probably shouldn't have done it to the poor teacher, you know. But he said, uh, well, here, you show me how. I said, well, and he had this PRS guitar on, like thousands of pounds worth. I said, well, I can't show you on that. It'll be so, you'll probably break the string on that. Has anyone got a real guitar? And he went, whoa, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he gave me a Telecaster. And you tune it up to C, open C. So, that, I mean, the bottom E string, for example, goes all the way up to, to C, and the top E goes up to G. So it's really highly strung. And then I, you know, played. The kids loved it, and blah blah blah. And they, you know, the the principal from Berkeley was there. He said, "Oh, that's great. And that's going to be on the on the teaching list now." Bucket, you know, we went out. And I, I did feel pretty bad about, you know, throwing the teacher under the bus, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, little little ribbing's okay. Little, little, little jab yeah. is fine. Yeah. <laughs> And when and sorry and when was that? Were you were you invited to that? Uh, let me see. That would have been about ten years ago because I was putting my first solo album together, and I'd got all these great singers on it. And um, the record company guy at the time, he said, "Look, this is all well and good." He said, "Do you fancy? What do you think about this idea? We contact Berkeley and say we're doing this album." send us a recording of your 10 best rock singers. We'll pick one and we'll do a song with him on the album as well, you know. So I said, yeah, that'd be great, you know. So they sent the tapes over and I said, I do insist on coming over and recording him myself, though, you know. And so we went over to one of their studios and uh, this kid came in. He, he, I wrote the song, I think, two hours before I got on the plane. <laughs> went over there and... Uh, and he sang it great. It's really good. So I spent about three or four days there. Seth Romano, his name was, I remember. And uh, did a great did, job. Did he know who you were at least? <laughs> <laughs> at least after he got the call, then he knew for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, he, he knew. Yeah, he, he knew. Yeah. yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, that's good. And so I, I I forget where we I forget where we left off. I, I went with the I went the geeky route, and then now okay, I so remember we, where we with Paul uh, Rogers, Rogers, yeah, and uh, we we finished up recording. Probably the proudest thing I've ever done was the Merchants of Call album DVD, which we recorded two shows, uh, one in Denver and one in LA, and. Um, massive shoot you know 12 cameras and all that you know slash joined us for a couple of songs and neil sean from journey i mean it's probably my thing i'm most proud of you know that that that's 
Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I'm like, oh man, that's yeah, that is pretty cool. And where, uh, so Denver, uh, what venue? Oh, I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea. Like, what was it? But Red Rocks isn't in Denver, is it? It's in Colorado. No, no, this, because we were recording all this and DVD, we wanted like little theaters. So mm -hmm. the, the one in California was the Anaheim House of Blues or something like that, you know. Oh, so small venue. it's, you know, a couple of thousand people, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's, it's really good, great sound and everything. Yeah, that was. Well, it's funny you bring up Slash because so uh, the oh not in this lifetime tour. There we go, uh, where Guns and Roses uh, reunited, um, where they're just doing like ridiculous like football stadium tour of of North America and Europe, like just absurd stuff. But it was funny because so we saw Guns and Roses in Seattle eh, sometime in the summer. And then like three months later, see Slash with Miles Kennedy at a theater, you know, a few few thousand people in in Vancouver. And it's yeah. like, like this guy was just like, just like mentally, it's just like, wow, you know, like, but but even for you, that must be a really cool thing to obviously your your band, like the lineup is absurd. And then you're playing like this kind of it's much must have a much more intimate feel to it. It does. Yeah. I mean, it's. You know, with Bad Company, we did two tours with Bon Jovi. You know, we were on their private jet doing, we did a tour of Canada, actually. It was absolutely like, you know, stadiums and all that. Um, and then, you know, I saw Richie in a club with 300 people in Nashville, you know. Just, uh, you know, I mean, with Kenny Jones from who I'm playing with at the weekend. I mean, the tours he did with the Faces and the Who, uh, and the small faces before that, you know, and we're playing, a, I think we sold 400 tickets on Sunday, you know, so it, it's, people like seeing it up close and, you know, I mean, people say, do you prefer doing a normal, a normal stadium gigs or little gigs? I mean, yeah, I prefer the big ones, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it, it's all fun just to play anyway. Well, and that's just it. Like, that's kind of what I've I've been sort of like thinking about when it comes to musicians, like in particular. I think dancers have a bit of that too, it seems like, but I'm not too well versed in that category. But like, certainly compared to athletes, where it's like, I mean, obviously they're professional. So like they play, you know, for the team in a set stadium or whatever. But it almost seems like with, with musicians, there there's... I mean, bit of a blanket statement, but generally speaking, like for as far as the passion for playing is concerned, it really seems like there, there's no ego when it comes to, oh, that place is too small or that place, like it, that doesn't seem to happen very often. No, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, in the words of Billy Gibbons, you got to get paid, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's our job, you know, it's obviously the financial thing comes into it as well, but. I mean, I think two years ago now, I did a, a little couple of shows over here, uh, Bucket and Co. And I flew Jimmy Coons, who's the singer with Humble Pie now with me. I flew him in from New York. Cable player came in from Denmark. And I Clive Edwards on drums and 
YC on bass, both London. And we booked two London gigs, I think the Half Moon Putney and another one, which sold out. And I think I would have just about made even, but I got so excited, I put in three more gigs, like Birmingham and Nottingham and somewhere up. So that involves hotels and a van and a blah, blah. So I ended up losing a fortune, you know. So you, you, you have to sort of reel your neck in sometimes, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, eyes are bigger than the stomach sometimes, I guess, you know. Well, we're having such fun, Marcus, you know. It's like, man, this is, let's do some more. This is great, you know. That's why I'm not a manager. <laughs> <laughs> Play everywhere, anywhere, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've always got a bag packed. There's always a guitar in the hall. <laughs> Just turn me loose, point me in a direction, you know. Yeah, no, that's what I like to hear. I mean, that that's kind of, it, it's funny because it sort of reminds me of, because um, uh, Joe Bonamassa especially is like, because that guy is like, he's so crazy. Like the guy will just tour, all, like the guy will tour 300 plus days out of every year and will do that years in a row. And it's just like the 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 love of, of music and then performing and, and it also, you know, and like you said, like you, when you're home, you're not going to pick up a, a guitar to just play. Like you'll pick it up to write something like you're actively engaging in your craft. But then, you know, the touring thing, I mean, you're engaging in your craft, but then you also have the fun side of making a bit of money, performing in front of people like doesn't get it's any. Better what been, it's what we've been doing for years. I mean this this pandemic thing i mean when you've got bands that, that are a real well-oiled machine for example your eye heap do 260 275 shows a year you know i mean everywhere russia greece you know all out and bands in america like sticks and skinnered uh, they just never stop they do hundreds of shows a year and to 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 go from that to absolutely nothing, it, it, it was murder at first. It's like you get to six o'clock and you're getting right, getting ready, getting your stage head on. You know, I mean, you know, wait a minute, no, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> you know? Wearing slippers and <laughs> yeah, really, just, uh, well, I'm sure a bit of you know, people were a lot worse off than us, but it, it, it hasn't been easy, you know. Yeah, and it's all relative, right? I mean, that, that's the thing. It's like, you know, there, there's also a lot of unintended consequences from, from yeah. this whole thing, you know? So I know it must be, but at least in, in England, it seems like it's kind of getting back to normal-ish. Well, there'd be a long time if it's back in the music industry. I don't know if it will be back to how it was ever, to be quite frank, you know? Too much has been lost, but... Uh... Let's not dwell on that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, so anyway, we, I know the tangents. We're going on the tangents, or I'm going on the tangents. But um, okay, yeah, so bad, bad um, company. Did we even move past bad company with Paul? I feel like we stopped and then we went on a tangent. <laughs> After bad company, that's when uh, we first put the Jones gang together with Kenny, um, Robert Hart, Rick Wills, and myself, and uh, we did an album. Um, that, that was going well from we did a lot a lot of corporate gigs you know silverstone race course and Ooh. golf places and all that you know and we have a lovely percussion player nick cook who's a smashing fellow but and he also owned 
owned an airfield with several aeroplanes and helicopters. So we flew in and out of everywhere doing shows for Harley Davidson and all that. But great, great live band. We do material from the bands we've all been in. So it'd be Small Faces, Faces, Who, Bad Company. And I, I wonder with that, as far as, I guess that, yeah, I guess that, like just intellectual property in general, how does that work playing other people? Oh, well, so you guys were obviously in the bands that you were playing the, the songs for, but generally yeah. speaking, I, I always wondered that, like, how does that work? If like, let's say you want to go play a, a ACDC song, maybe because you weren't in ACDC, you know, w- would that be something that you could do live or do, is it just kind of yeah. like the unwritten rule? No, you can do it. Yeah. As long as, you know, the, the venue, is all hooked up with PRS, the Performing Rights Society. So, you know, the writers of the songs will get, you know, some money for that. Um, so, I mean, even like little pubs and bars, you know, they, they're all registered for PRS. You know, if you have a jukebox in a, in a pub, you have to be registered with PRS. And is that in England only? Or is that pretty much throughout? No, pretty much without or without the, throughout the world. I mean, it's not all performance rights society. Some of the companies are different, the collection agencies, if you like. Yeah, I know it's a bit of a dry question, but I, I always wondered that. I'm like, yeah, I wonder how that, yeah, I just kind of figured, yeah, I wonder, because like, it seems like you should be able to just kind of play whatever, but then you also want to, you know, give credit where credit's due, you know? Sure, yeah. 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 I mean, talk about a tangent. I watched a movie the night before last called Yesterday, which is um, there's a little singer-songwriter bloke playing in pubs and all that, not making any money, and he's about to give up. But um, he comes out of a gig, and there's a power cut all over the world for about five seconds. And in that five seconds, he gets hit by a bus on his bike and wakes up in hospital. When he wakes up, long story short, no one's ever heard of the Beatles it, all throughout the world. No one's ever heard of it. So he's sitting there playing a song and they think, wow, that's great. What's that? You know, he's playing the Beatles. And it goes through, and also he comes massive star all over the world, you know, huge multi-million you know, playing all Beatles songs because no one's ever heard of them. It's a great movie. I mean, that's a good turn of events. If, if, yeah, if you yeah, capitalize yeah. on that, it's, that's pretty good. He's dead. Dead funny because Ed Sheeran's in it, and Ed Sheeran is, sees the thing on YouTube, and comes around his house and says, "You're the best song I've heard in ten years," and takes <laughs> it on tour. You know? <laughs> it's good. There you go. So yeah, PRS was needed in that movie for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, we formed the Jones Gang, did that for a few years, and we're still doing it. And that's when I started putting um, the Rebel Heart album together. Um, five years ago now so um, we did we were never intending to be a touring band it was more of a recording band doing cherry picking the odd gig like Sweden Rock you know because it's too we all live all over the place and it's too expensive and we're all a bit too old to go around in a chip shop van now you know (laughs) yeah Yeah. and for that because you mentioned a um you have a bunch of people on that album. One of the things that I, I mentioned to you with the singers on your on that album. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, my goodness. 
Yeah. Oh, they're, they're really good. I mean, Molly Marriott, the daughter of Steve Marriott, does a lot of the backing vocals, which is great, which leads us on to the next thing. In 2018, I was in Humble Pie in the year 2000 with Jerry Shirley and Greg Ridley, the originals, and Bobby Tench. Um, and that, we did an album back on track, which I produced. Uh, it's so we did a couple of little tours, but it sort of fell apart. Greg got very ill and sadly passed away. Um, but in 2018, I'm still good friends with Jerry, and he owns the name and everything like that. So we wanted to bring Humble Pie music back to people. So he let me put a band together to play Humble Pie music. So I've got um, Jimmy Coons. Um, American singer from a band called Cactus. And we just hit it off really well. And I went to stay with him in New York and we put a band together out there. So we went on the road in 2018. So uh, we were just getting started really when all this pandemic stuff hit. But uh, we'll be back out, not this year, that's all settled down because it, it's based in America and I can't really go there at the moment. Mm. So we're, we're booking stuff for next year. Yeah. And as far as the, the future, uh, not too far into the future, but just sort of a little more recent, uh, what are your plans going forward? Obviously, we talked about the new solo album coming out hopefully soon. And is it just yeah, kind of... Yeah, I, mean, I mean, there's three things at the minute. We're, we're just getting back into gigging with the Jones gang. Uh, we're making plans for Humble Pie for next year. So that involves a lot of you know, making a campaign and, and all the rest of it. Um, and then I'm recording the Rebel Heart album, which hopefully we'll have out um, this year, hopefully the end of the summer. Perfect. Yeah, sounds good. Well, I think that's probably a good place to stop. That's about 90 minutes, if you can believe that. Well, Flies. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Now it's been fun, Marcus. I enjoy it. Yeah, thank you. So I have to say, like, I don't think I swore once either. Brilliant. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I swear like a trucker too. So it's always every time I do a podcast, I'm like, don't swear. You sound like an idiot. Don't swear. <laughs> if I had it my way, it'd be five times a sentence. I know I'm terrible. That yeah. But I just have to say, I mean, uh, it's it's been a, a few weeks since I've recorded a podcast, but these are so much fun to do. I just love doing these. And I just can't thank you enough for being here. It was great talking with you. And answering all my crazy questions and all that so <laughs> good fun great thanks so much dave we'll talk soon all right cheers bye